and welcome to Glossy's new Week in Review, our bonus coverage of three big fashion stories that shape the week. I'm Jill Manoff, Glossy's editor-in-chief, and co-hosting with me is Glossy fashion reporter Danny Parisi. Hey, Danny. Hello, Jill. Thanks for having me back. Today, we're talking the Balenciaga and Fortnite partnership, the hybrid London Fashion Week, and Vestier Collective's new $1.7 billion valuation. Let's get to it. So, Fortnite, Balenciaga, this was... Everyone was a buzz about this puppy. Was this a surprise? We've seen these collabs before. How do you see it? Here's my opinion on this. Uh, I have heard a lot of buzz recently about fashion and the metaverse and uh, virtual digital fashion and clothes that you can kind of just put on a picture of yourself on Instagram, stuff like that. Um, Something that I think is missing from a lot of that conversation is that the various metaverses out there like Decentraland and and places like that, they have like 200 to 300 people on them, like at any given time. Fortnite has at, at various times, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people playing. So like the scale is just far, 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 far larger on Fortnite. And Fortnite isn't quite a metaverse in the way that I think some fashion brands like to imagine like this virtual space where you explore and look at art installations. It's not that it's a, it's a, place where like 12 year olds like shoot each other with guns um but it's uh the the scale of Fortnite to me makes this like a much bigger deal than than some of the other like fashion metaverse kind of crossovers um and the fact that it's Balenciaga is not too surprising to me because I feel like they're a little bit more on the cutting edge than compared to some of the other big luxury brands out there like they made the the triple s sneaker a while ago and that was huge in sort of the young streetwear sneakerhead kind of uh subculture for a while so i i feel like it makes sense that it's them doing this and i've from talking to the people at epic games who make fortnite i know that they have a lot of they have a lot of fashion stuff coming up too so i, I think this is just the beginning you are on the pulse you were correct 400 million players i know this i this is in my fashion briefing that goes out this afternoon um but yeah multi-tiers to this partnership uh it involves Balenciaga clothes, in-game clothes. What do you call the clothes? Sets? Uh, Skins. Skins. Thank you very much. Um, (laughs) A Balenciaga store in the game, some billboards where the players can integrate themselves. It's exciting. My thing is, it's always been about the clothes. In my briefing today, I I kind of go into, there was an interesting stat that 50% of Fortnite's players they're not kind of working in these, like, it used to be, like, about fighting games. Now they're in these, what do you call it, creative mode where you're yeah. creating rooms. You're 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 doing your own thing. You're customizing it. It's just a, kind of a creative outlet, and it's fun. So I was like, I feel like this is going to translate to retail. Like, this is going to inspire stores. What do you think? Like, it, is that is that does that have potential, that idea? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I... So I, I play a lot of video games, but I never really played Fortnite or, and I never played Roblox, which is the other like big one where kids just spend hours and hours like messing around. And, what about and, Minecraft? Uh, Minecraft, I was going to say the similar. <laughs> I know your niece and nephew, I think, are they like huge Minecraft heads. But um, they those games all have like a creative mode where there's like competitive modes. Fortnite's big thing is a battle royale where there's like 100 people fighting each other. But there's also you can just go in in creative mode Fortnite also has a bunch of building you know aspect to it so um i think like the creative aspect of it 
makes more sense for some of these partnerships. I, I was also going to say there's this concept in in games that have uh, some sort of transaction in it, like where you can buy outfits for your character called a whale. Have you ever heard of that, Jill? New information. I have not. Okay. A whale is the, the like 1% of people who spend thousands and thousands of dollars on a game who make up for like the 99% of people who barely or maybe never buy anything in the game. So Fortnite is free to play, but you can buy, like if you want to buy, if you want your character to wear the Balenciaga clothes, you have to buy them. And probably a vast majority of people will probably not spend any money, but a select few will spend a ton of money. And that's like makes up for the fact that most people don't. So um, even if, uh, I don't know if they'll, if they'll release any numbers or anything, but even if it comes out that not that many people bought the Balenciaga clothes, like the people who did buy a lot of stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, and if there's a way to translate like those people, that 1% into real life customers or a that, you know, that could be super valuable. Yeah, I really like this idea. Uh, you're hitting on something. I talked to Emma Chu at Wonderman Thompson Intelligence. They just did a report called Into the Metaverse. And she was all jazzed about this new e-commerce model for brands. She called it D to A or direct to avatar. And she was saying, you know, Balenciaga hasn't just done this. It's Gucci, American Eagle. Like it kind of spans the gamut in terms of brands that have gone there. And for the potential uh, to, again, reach these 400 million uh, players. So anyway. Are the clothes, are all the clothes that you can buy in Fortnite all things that you can get in real life too? I don't know if it's a direct mashup, like a direct correlation. Yeah. Okay. Because I I know from, I talked to Hillary Tamor from Kalina Strata a little while ago, and she was doing some stuff for Metaverse, and it was actually kind of a mix because she designed some clothes for in-game, and some of it was real things that you could buy with a mix of other like really wild, fantastic things that you couldn't, you couldn't make in real life, you know, like a t-shirt with like a fish coming straight out of it or something, you know, wild stuff like that. So I wonder if Balenciaga is all things you can get in real life or if they're, I don't know that, that, that will be interesting to see too, though, because I, I imagine that it's a little bit easier to make that translation from player to real life customer if you can actually buy those, you know, in real life. Yes. I feel like a lot of brands are going about gaming the wrong way. I mean, now that the word metaverse is out there, I feel like maybe they'll start to get it. But for for years, I feel like brands have been telling me, you know, we're trying something, it's gaming, and it has to do with like, mm, customization or personalization in terms of, you know, on our app, you can like things and that personalizes what you're seeing. And and it's fun. It's like a game, but that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> right. That's yeah. different than, than Fortnite, which is like an actual game, you know? Um, and I, and I do think, I mean, I've done a lot of reporting on this and I think the, the traditional view of like people who play video games as like basement dwellers, like is very outdated. I mean, obviously i I play a lot of games and I go to fashion week and stuff. Um, So there's not no crossover between those two worlds. And if you go to like a professional competitive gaming, like esports thing, a lot of those players have sponsorship deals with Nike or Adidas, just like any other type of athlete. They, the shoes that they wear, like sell out, they get signature jerseys and stuff from these big brands. So um, there, there's a pretty significant and growing 
kind of overlap between those two worlds. Watch this space. I feel like we'll be talking about this in weeks to come, uh, for sure, as more brands follow suit. Well, now we'll see the the followers versus the leaders. But anyway, I'm sure it'll be exciting. Let's jump in, switch categories. London Fashion Week wrap this week. We're on to Milan. Uh, I mean, what I saw was the same, you know, it wasn't that far off in terms of the setup from New York. Some of the big players were not there, which, you know, editors weren't buzzing as much because there was no Burberry. There was no no Burberry. No uh, Victoria Beckham, but I think she did something virtually, I think. I heard that too. And I also heard Christopher Kane maybe had a private dinner. Burberry is not releasing their digital show until Monday. I don't know if it's a show presentation. Um, But, you know, kind of the buzz is it made room for some of these younger, um, I guess maybe not young, emerging designers that are lesser known, um, some female designers that don't often, you know, get, get the buzz that others do. I was a fan. Like it was more inspiring what I was seeing coming out of London. London's usually more, I guess, edgy and creative. Um, That's not new, but it was definitely um, sexier, more skin. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Nancy Dejaka. I am such a fan. I was following her on Instagram or the brand on Instagram uh, for a good year now. And it's just, um, you know, it's an it girl brand. Uh, Bella is wearing it. They're all wearing it. But anyway, what did you see? Yeah, I mean, kind of the same as you. The the big brands weren't there, and this same thing sort of happened at New York Fashion Week. With the big brands not there, there's more room for emerging designers. There was um, this designer Harris Reed, whose show that I, I really liked. I mean, obviously, I didn't get to go, but I I looked at a lot of pictures, and um, there, yeah, I think there was a lot of cool up and coming designers. Uh, several people who won or were finalists for the LVMH prize were, got to show, which was nice. Um, I also, so I looked it up. There were 79, I think, in-person events and 82 digital events at London Fashion Week. So an almost even split with a little bit more digital. And it's kind of the same, again, as New York Fashion Week. There, I, I imagine all the fashion weeks are going to be going through the same problems and asking the same questions, which is, how do we go back to in-person events? How do we um, incorporate digital um, elements into the show? Do we show during the week or do we show after? Like you said, Burberry is showing there's, uh, you know, the week after London Fashion Week. So all the same questions and and answers probably that we got from New York Fashion Week, I think are going to be present at London and probably Milan too. Yes. As everybody, so a true hybrid, that's interesting. That was an even split. Good research there. <laughs> um, but it would be good after these weeks to kind of look back and say, you know, as brands are talking about, you know, this is how we're reaching our audience, our customer directly. We did a show for them that anybody can watch and it's inclusive and all that jazz. Like, how did this translate to traffic to the site? How did this translate to sales? Would love to know that. I know, I mean, this is not a London, a British designer, but earlier in the week I talked to Monique Lulier, um, and she said she opted out of fashion shows a good couple of years ago because she's doing these destination lookbook shoots that are more inspiring to her shopper, uh, translating to, sh- to sales. They're more fun for her. Like, there's no going back. She's completely sold. Um, but the fact that it's, you know, that appeals to a bride. They're doing destination weddings. They can see themselves in this location. Maybe they don't see themselves on a runway. That makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm hoping that in the next couple seasons, we'll see at both New York Fashion Week and London Fashion Week. I think we talked about this in our last episode, but um, 
I would like to see some higher attendance and some more kind of like spectacle from all these shows. Like you said, London, I feel like has a lot of like theatricality um, from some of the shows I saw a little bit more edgy. I think New York, because it's big, is also a little safe sometimes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm excited to see also what's going on at, at Milan. I'm going to try and uh, dig up the numbers after Milan Fashion Week about digital versus physical, too. And maybe we could compare the three I would like to see. Absolutely. And maybe one of the shows will uh, mirror reference a metaverse. <laughs> because I tell you what, they're definitely looking more like it's it's more um, there's more entertainment, I guess. That's I think designers are using to to make their shows a draw. I think that one Somebody did an underwater presentation with synchronized swimmers. Halpern, who I'm a fan of, did um, a film. It was a film, but there were ballet dancers. Like, it wasn't just clothes. I think that that's crucial um, to get people out. It was just like I, we talked about and I saw with Tom Brown um, in New York. So anyway, more of that to come. Let's dig in. You are such the resale expert. You, you've been covering this space left and right. Uh, Vestier Collective, it was the third huge funding round in the resale space in, I don't know, a matter of weeks. We saw it with Grails. We saw it with TradeZ and uh, Vestier this week. Go ahead. And even uh, within Vestier, they've gotten several funding rounds this year because they also got that big funding round in March, uh, which was led by Caring. Um, and it was, uh, I forget the exact amount. It was, you know, uh, $200 million maybe or something like that. Um and it was led by caring along with um, they also have investors from like Condé Nast who just reinvested in this new funding round. Condé Nast was one of them. Um, SoftBank, which is a huge Japanese company. So there's um, they get tons of money and from giant, you know, big mainstream fashion companies um, all around the world. Uh, so Vessier, I think to me, are sort of dominant in the European resale space. I mean, they definitely have a presence here in the US too. I got to go to their New York office um, last year, I think, or no, two years ago, because it was pre-pandemic. Um, and they've got like a huge warehouse-like space, um, I think down in Chelsea. They might have moved since then though. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, just the amount of money that investors are pouring into resale in general, investor in particular, um, is insane. Uh, you know, like you said, Grailed just got a a huge investment from Goat, which is interesting because it sort of consolidated those two. Um, and it, it was interesting. I wrote about that and uh, both Grailed and Goat sort of bristled a little bit at me describing them as sneaker resale spots, which to be very, to be fair, they're right. Like they do, they both sell more than sneakers, but like, come on, they're both known for sneakers. That's a, that, that's a, how they got their start. And when people say a Grail, they're talking about like, you know, the holy grail of sneakers. That's where that name comes from. Resale just uh, is getting a lot of interest from investors and specifically from people in the fashion space like Caring um, or like Goat. Uh, so, well, I guess Goat's investing in itself because it is a resale space. But you know what I mean? There's a lot of interest from sort of like the more traditional fashion brands, like the primary market, um, which has sort of been brewing for for years and now that, that I've been covering it. All the resale people have always been telling me like any day now, all the, the big brands are going to start investing in it. And it's true. Like they really are. I mean, they're either doing resale themselves. Like I was just writing about Madewell's partnership with ThreadUp, which, you know, keeps getting new features added to it like every week, um, or they're pouring a ton of money into uh, resale companies that already exist. 
For sure. Do you think we're going to see more consolidation? Like with Goat and Grailed, there was also Depop selling to Etsy recently. Um, is that just inevitable as the space kind of streamlines? I do think it's I do think it's inevitable. Something that's interesting about resale to me is it feels very much like an organic groundswell kind of trend, I guess. Uh, I, I truly feel like consumers or just like regular people started buying secondhand and the demand for that is like organically created all this investment and interest. Whereas I sometimes feel stuff like the metaverse is a good example. It feels to me a little top down where it's sort of forced. And I'm like, how many people are actually, you know, using like logging into IMVU or second life or something like that. Um, and you know what I mean? Sometimes you, yeah. you a, a brand is like talking about something and you're kind of like, I feel like you're trying to make this into a trend and it's not really, <laughs> you know, a trend that's happening naturally. But I do feel like resale is purely, purely driven by consumer desire for it. Um, and you've seen because there's all these huge, huge companies like SoftBank is uh, one of the biggest like investors in the world, I think. And they poured a ton of money into Vestiaire. So I, I think when you get these giant companies seeing the organic demand and pouring a lot of investment to it into it, and they they have a ton of money to throw around and they can just, you know, snatch up or invest in uh, the players who already have a big audience. Like, I think it's inevitable that, you know, caring is probably going to invest in more resale stuff in the future. It's so interesting. What is all of this this resale boom? What does it say about consumer behavior? Because, you know, all of the resale companies are really pushing this is a more sustainable option. I mean, obviously, you're keeping things it's more circular, you're keeping this these products in rotation, but um to me, based on what is attracting funding or maybe what's just being what's becoming successful in the space are those that are really focusing on price, the savings of, of shopping secondhand versus resale. I, I thought it was so interesting. So I went on the Vestiaire site uh, right when they announced their funding and it's all about saving money, which I'm seeing less of on the Real Real because for all the, the longest time, I'm a Real Real shopper. They'd have a promo code, save 20%. No matter what day it was, it was a different code, save 20%. And if you didn't, if you were on that page, there was not a promo code, you'd come back tomorrow because you're not going to buy anything without that damn promo code. But on Vestiaire Collective, Man, there's a promo code. There's an option to make an offer below the price. There is an option to follow the price reductions. Um, there is Klarna is called out on the product pages. Like there are so many things like you can get this now. <laughs> you yeah. know you need it if you can't get it tomorrow. You know, I, I was just surprised. Um, are you seeing this more? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's, I think there's several ways if you're a resale company that you can go. And to me, the, I mean, I think that the desire for resale ultimately at the core of it is driven by, I want this thing for less money. Um, and it has all these other benefits. It is like, it genuinely is better for the environment to, you know, buy something and, or sell it and have it be worn multiple times rather than it just going in the trash. Like that genuinely is a good thing. Um, but I think the vast majority of people buy resale because it's just cheaper and the quality is pretty good usually. Um, and so there are definitely companies that lean into it. Um, and it's interesting that you say the real, real doesn't or doesn't as much anymore because I feel like they're more luxury adjacent and they want to present themselves as sort of a luxury experience. I bet that that has something to do with maybe they've decided that leaning into like everything's cheap, everything's cheap is like maybe cheapening that idea, you know? 
Yeah, that I think you're onto something. Because then also when you look at the imagery and the websites, Vestiaire is definitely less content driven. Their imagery, you know, it's it's um, peer to peer, like it's it's not professional. The real real takes items in house and photographs them. That's not happening on Vestiaire, and it does look, you know, lower quality. Let's just say, um, for sure. And and it's funny because the real real, like. No disrespect to them. I think they're they're doing super well. They're like a really strong player in the space, but they present it as a, you know, luxury experience. And if they downplay like that, it's a deal like that's sort of the the appeal for a lot of people that it is a deal. So I don't know. I think that's a hard needle to thread for them. Um, but yeah, I, I do think for a lot of consumers, uh, the demand is just I would like this this Gucci bag and I don't want to spend Gucci money on it. And I love the treasure hunt and I like to find something good. <laughs> anyway, I That's love that. That's part of it too. Yeah. For sure. It's so fun. Well, I think that next week we'll probably talk about the Savage Fenty show, which, hey, it's Savage yeah. Fenty Day this Friday today. <laughs> Happy Savage Fenty Day. It's also the beginning of fall. We didn't talk about that, but it is summer's over. Yeah. Well, we'll be talking about fall fashion, I guess, um, or the mm-hmm. pivot or what that means for the sweatpants era. Well, we will reconvene next week. Till next time, Danny. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. 